Hello and welcome to Young Nostalgia, the podcast that takes a trip down memory lane from two guys that never lived it. I'm Nolan, beside me is Ben, and we thank you for joining us as we talk about our passion for the past while being young at heart. As always, if you like what you hear, be sure to rate and sh- um, rate and share where you get your podcasts um, and, and uh, share the love of Young Nostalgia. We're on Apple Podcasts as well as Google Play, and you can find us on Stitcher. And any positive reviews that you guys have for us only helps us grow. And don't forget to subscribe. Without further ado, Ben, how you doing today? Today's a good day. It's always a good day when recording Young Nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I didn't uh, hear any hesitation, so I, 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 I totally believe it. Today we're coming at you with our second volume of Then and Now. And we kind of decided to go the route of... Uh, late night talk shows or otherwise influential media um, headliners, I guess, throughout American um, you know, television or radio history. Right. And so down the line, we got Jimmy Fallon, somewhat something that uh, you know both past and present people can uh, relate to. And then we got Johnny Carson, the king of late night himself. And then we're going to round out the episode with Walter Cronkite, the um, most trusted newsman probably in uh american history would you would you disagree on that yes i will agree i would agree on that that's he actually got that uh got that title from uh polling so i mean the people spoke <laughs> well, he's I the can... most trusted <laughs> most trusted anchor in newscasting i bet his approval ratings are higher than uh trump's currently <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're going to get going. So we're going to kick it off with some Jimmy Fallon. Um, He's definitely a personal favorite of mine. I love watching uh, The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. Um, And and he's just a guy that kind of spans a couple generations of uh, his comedy. And so Jimmy Fallon was born um, September 19th, 1974 in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, New York. He has been regarded as one of the most prominent late night show hosts within the past few years since he's taken the helm of The Tonight Show. Um, and uh, since spoken to, uh, he, he calls his big influences of Steve Martin, Dan Aykroyd, as well as Rodney Dangerfield for what uh, he pulls from his um, comedy comedy roots. Um, so notable acts then when he was starting to get his um, name out there in the comedy world. He actually debuted on Saturday Night Live as a featured player at the beginning of the show's 24th season back in September of 1998 and he actually stayed on the crew up through the 2004 season. So through SNL he actually became a star by his fourth episode going in um, really kind of gaining notoriety through his impressions. He was very good at impressions Um, and the one thing that kind of skyrocketed him in SNL fame was uh, he sang Halloween themed impressions of popular songs um, at the time. And so, I mean, I don't know how much you've seen of Jimmy Fallon, Ben, but he, he does very well <laughs> when it comes to impersonations because they do um, kind of like this spin the wheel when he has guests on and they right. do a game where they try to impersonate like um, the singing style of uh, of a musician, but then they sing like something off the wall, like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. <laughs> yeah, I have seen a little bit. Of, I have seen a little bit of that. I don't watch very often at all, but I, I am familiar with that. <laughs> <laughs> so back back then in SNL, he was um, huge into his imitations, like I said, um, and a lot of it included Robert De Niro, Jerry Seinfeld, as well as Howard Stern. Oh my gosh! I mean, I 
when you think about impersonations, All I mean, Robert De Niro people. is always on. <laughs> right. Um, I always feel like Robert De Niro is always very prominent when it comes to impersonations because you got to like squint the eyes a little bit, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, anyone who ever does any sort of, I mean, even from just people messing around, you know, day to day, joking around all the way up to people like Frank Caliendo, you know, the some of the great uh, imitations oh, yeah. people, everyone does Robert De Niro. <laughs> Are you talking to me? <laughs> Are you? Talking, talking to me. To me? <laughs> <laughs> so in his later years on SNL, um, Fallon actually co-starred in a skit titled The Barry Gibb Talk Show alongside musician Justin Timberlake. So this really kind of hit off their iconic um, brotherhood or uh, manship, I guess. There's huge friendship between Justin Timberlake and uh, Jimmy Fallon. So the duo actually portrayed the BG brothers Barry and Robin Gibb and it marked the beginning of a long friendship collaboration between the two and I was watching the skit a little bit and they are really hilarious it opens up with like um, one of them is is, uh, they have the wigs on and one's on the guitar and they always like they talk in that high pitched voice the entire time (laughs) Um, so Fallon was known for his tendencies would you say no I was just about to say I was not looking ahead, I was about to uh, skip a little bit going into the, the more cowbell. <laughs> like, that's what I was about to comment on, but oh, continue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Jimmy Jimmy was actually really known for his tendencies to break character. Um, and a lot of this stemmed from just the um, spontaneous, spontaneous nature of what SNL could be. And so... Um, it actually started beginning with the skit of more cowbell with Will Ferrell. And so what actually ended up happening is that when the skit started, Jimmy was always out already out on stage and here comes Will Ferrell and he was, he was wearing a skinnier skirt than what was planned. And Jimmy just lost it. <laughs> um, uh, Jimmy Fallon, he's, he's one of those guys that can break character and just totally lose it. And it still be fantastic. <laughs> like some people, it just ruins everything. And then you know, Jimmy Fallon's one of those few people who, you know, it could to- the whole skit and everything could just totally fall apart, and it's still it's still hilarious. Well, he was known <laughs> for such his like um, humorous and easygoing nature, and I feel like it really shows in this kind of thing because like I I personally really love it when shows like this when people break character because it makes it so much more real and then i mean obviously you break character because it's hilarious so the people watching it mm-hmm. are gonna laugh because they're like you know what was going behind the scenes that they didn't see that like coming or expecting and i know we talked about this a little bit it's kind of like it reminds us of the carol burnett show right <laughs> yeah because she would lose it too well anyone on the show would just i mean <laughs> They would, they would, the whole thing would just fall apart, and they'd have to like, you know, wait a minute or two, and every, it's still rolling, of course, and just to yeah. like let the comedians get their get their composure back. And it was <laughs> those really are the best. <laughs> those are the best episodes. <laughs> so here, oh my gosh! So J- Jimmy Fallon is really notable for his breaking the character um, when on set of SNL, and you know what? There's always two sides of a coin. So some people really enjoyed it, and some people didn't like it as much because they thought he was trying to steal the attention of the skit to right. him. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, so skipping forward, so his notable acts now, um, 
when he kind of broke away from like the stand-up comedy scene, I guess, um, he was actually invited to be the star of Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, which airs after The Tonight Show. Um, and he was on there from 2009 to 2013. And he really proved himself um, by having like a different late night equation. So he was he really focused on music, dancing, impersonations, as well as games with his hosts, um, or, or with his guests. And you can really... You can even see that to this day when he took over um, The Tonight Show um, back in 2014. And he's really big on um, that kind of honed-in, homey nature of late night. Kind of like Johnny Johnny Carson, Mm -hmm. but more of a free-flowing, game-oriented show. So he got really involved with his guests Mm -hmm. um, by coming up with weird, funky (laughs) games. Like One was (laughs) they'd play blackjack, and if they get the hand wrong, they got these big slap like foam fingers and they would just slap the crap out of each other if they got it wrong <laughs> oh my gosh so um great great um and the one, one of the cool things is that i heard of when he moved to the tonight show um he promised all of his loyal fans of late night that the show would be no different other than the name and i think he really accomplished that mm-hmm. and and uh i kind of like what you're talking about the the johnny carson how they have that they both had that kind of air about them that you know the show is it it might be just for you you know you're watching the show i mean it's right you're you're sitting that you're sitting at home and they're almost like right there with you because it's they do have that such a a down-to-earth real um real feel to them that i'm i'm sure is you know the reason behind the the huge success for both of them yeah yeah agreed (laughs) Well, as we just talked about Johnny Carson, I guess that's a good lead-in. Yes, it is. All right. Well, we'll go into Johnny Carson a little bit here, kind of a background. He was uh, born on October 25th, 1925 in Corning, Iowa, um, but grew up primarily in Norfolk, Norfolk Nebraska. Um, he They actually call it Norfolk here in Nebraska. Norfolk? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. He needed some those dang Nebraska some English classes. <laughs> <laughs> oh come on now! <laughs> Sorry. Okay, best known for his thirty years of hosting the Tonight Show, um, it had a very casual, conversational approach to late night talk programs, and there was like you talked about a little bit before, there was just a, a huge interaction with the guests. That was really a, a main part of the show. Is you know how in depth and how uh, how cordial uh the um guest appearances were so moving on into the notable acts then um after the johnny carson show um failed in the mid 50s um became host of who do you trust uh all formerly known as do you trust your wife (laughs) (laughs) as 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 i understand it it was kind of like a game show kind of thing Uh (laughs) uh-huh I haven't. I, I've heard of it. I haven't, you know, watched any clips or anything like that. But yeah, I've <laughs> I've, I've heard of the show. And it's just a funny title. Um, <laughs> uh, in New York City, from 1957 through 1962, uh, the show became the hottest item on daytime television during his five years at ABC. Um, this would be around this time. This would be he where he met Ed McMahon. Um, And then moving on into The Tonight Show, uh, NBC offered the job to Johnny Carson after his success at ABC. Um, He, right off the bat, he originally uh, declined the offer, um, 
And <laughs> interesting enough, uh, it was because he found it would be difficult for 105-minute uh, interviews daily. And that's kind of, you know, he ended up picking it up, and that's what the show, that was what was so great about the show. You know, it's, it's funny that he thought yeah. that, he thought that that was going to be, you know, the the downfall. You know, it was going to be difficult to do. People might not like it. And it turns out it was quite the opposite. You know, that's really what the show be uh, became famous for. <clears throat> yeah, so, the funniest thing, though, is, is that, like, w- with interviews like these, <laughs> I mean, Johnny Carson didn't really have to do anything because the guests were the one to really carry the show mm-hmm. through. And like add on to the comedy throughout the entire thing. So like Johnny Carson would just take a take a drag off of a cigarette or something like that, and like just be cracking up over what his <laughs> guests have to say between like him, Ed, and whoever the guest was. Right, especially you know as the show went on. Um, well, as 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 a, a single show went on, you know the guests they, they just kind of stack up, and so there's there's more and more input on things. Um, you know, even if it's the the current guest, it's it's kind of their their time to speak. But there's still every time a new guest comes out, you know, there's more and more people, you know, to for input. And that's <laughs> <laughs> so it really um, adds a whole bunch of uh, perspective, you know, to a single interview, which is cool. So he was yeah, convinced yeah. to take the job in February of 1962, and. <laughs> there's uh right right after that uh McCohen ended up following Johnny and there uh that really kind of started the here's Johnny you know uh entrance to the show <laughs> <laughs> and you know that's been spoofed in cartoons and all kinds of things the shine they used it in the shining um yeah yeah you know that's kind of it's it's kind of one of the quotes one of the things that the show is really known for um, also, well, kind of along the same lines, uh, Carson's, uh, he also had his signature move that I'm sure you're aware of, uh, you know, the golf swing towards the orchestra, um, right, right after he finished his, uh, monologue. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things where it's not like, it's not like, uh, it's not really by itself funny or notable in any way, but it's just, it's kind of turned into one of those things that that's, that's what he did. And it's funny just <laughs> Because, <laughs> yeah, I know. Just like like he's you know teeing off the show, like let's go. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. absolutely. It's really really, really funny. <laughs> so Carson had a talent um, for quick quips and little one liners and that sort of thing to deal with particular problems that any particular problem that was going on. Um, if the opening monologue uh, didn't go so well, the band would start playing T for Two, and uh, Carson uh, danced a soft shoe to to laughs from the studio audience. Um, Alternatively, um, Carson might pull the boom microphone close to his face and announce, uh, attention, Kmart shoppers. (laughs) And and so, anything like that, you know, grabbing the boom mic and pulling it to you, I mean, that's just one of those things that kind of makes the show, you know, so much less formal, you know. Um, you know, it's not yeah. like it was supposed to be a sitcom-y kind of show anyway, quite the opposite, but it's still, you know, one of, little things here and there just make it, just just make the show. 
I, I just always picture it where like if, if he fails in the monologue, it's like in just regular conversation with anybody, like you, you feel really awkward, but only Johnny Carson could pull off how to get out of an awkward spot in a conversation. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, in a show like that, it, if if you lose it right there at the beginning, I mean, the, show, the rest of the show is just a train wreck, but Johnny Carson is just kind of yeah. like, well, it is what it is. Might as well keep going. <laughs> So, um, that was really, really what he was, he was known for, what he's famous for. And we'll kind of, kind of transition now into the, uh, notable acts now, or in this case, later in life. Um, by the mid seventies, um, he had become the highest paid personality on television, um, at the time earning about $4 million a year, <laughs> which in, uh, today's money that turns out to be about 14 and a half million dollars today. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, holy cow. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, in December of 1973, Carson joked um, on Tonight about an alleged shortage of toilet paper. <laughs> Panic, <laughs> Panic buying and hoarding ensued across the United States as consumers emptied stores. Um, this actually caused a real shortage um, for about the next couple weeks which is really funny um stores and toilet paper manufacturers um ended up rationing supplies until people like started to calm down and realize it was just a joke um and then later on in, <laughs> later on in january of 1974 he actually apologized um in what became uh, the new york times uh what became what the new york times called a classic study of how rumors spread I think the best thing about this is that, like, in no other Young Nostalgia show are we able to talk and joke about toilet paper shortage if it wasn't for Johnny Carson. And, like, the fact that this is one of his notable acts of of now is absolutely hilarious. Yeah, and just, you know, and you can just kind of think back to uh, when he said it. You know, it's probably just one of those things that popped into his room, like, oh, this will be funny to say, no big deal, and then actually causes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, a, a toilet paper shortage, you know, because <laughs> but looking, looking back on it, I mean, that is so funny. <laughs> All right. Uh, Carson retired from show business on May 22nd of 1992 at the age of 66. Um, when he stepped down as the host of The Tonight Show. His farewell was a major media event, um, and the often emotional Carson, um, and often, it was, excuse me, it was emo- very emotional for Carson, um, his colleagues and the audience, um, and it ended up stretching across multiple nights. Um, in tribute to Carson and his enormous influence, several networks uh, that had late-night variety talk shows uh went dark um for the entire hour that he did the show and that was really just you know kind of paying respect to this i mean the biggest guy in late night talk you know letting him have his letting the audiences have his undivided attention um to say goodbye yeah and and i know we've talked about this when we talked about influential moments in tv history johnny carson was one of them and I'm almost positive from what I read, he pulled over 50 million viewers in on that night alone for his retirement. Yeah, well, we talked about it, I believe, in the notable television history show, I think. We talked yep. about his farewell episodes, I'm pretty sure. And there was like 
it, it held records at the time for um, viewership, I believe. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I think it was something that even beat out like the Super Bowl or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it just, I mean, and it's for like a late night talk show. I mean, I don't know. Like, I realized it went for a long yeah. time and it was huge. I just, it just kind of boggles my mind that, you know, it, just the the farewell episodes, that sort of thing, you know, grew uh, drew so much so much attention. <clears throat> yeah. So, just days before Carson's death, the New York Times published a story revealing that he occasionally sent jokes to Letterman. <laughs> Um, and that Letterman would <laughs> then use these jokes in the monologue of his show, um, which uh, gave a uh, <laughs> which Carson got a huge kick out of it, and <laughs> which, I, I don't know, like that kind of you know back and forth kind of thing is is, is really funny between um, between celebrities, let alone you know kind of competing uh, late night hosts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, in 1981, Carson created the John W. Carson Foundation, dedicating dedicated to supporting children, education, and health services. The foundation continues to support charitable causes um, to this day. Um, in November of 2004, Carson announced a $5.3 million gift to the University of Nebraska Foundation uh, to support the uh, Hickson Lead College of Fine and Performing Arts um, Department of Theater Arts, which created the Johnny Carson School of Theater and Film. Um, that was a lot of words, but what it <laughs> really means he gave $5.3 million um, to University of Nebraska to kind of further their uh, performing arts department. Um, so Nebraska is well represented by Johnny Carson. He actually oh, studied yes, at is. UNL. He actually studied at UNL, which oh, is okay. pretty cool. That is pretty yep. awesome. Um, another $5 million donation was announced by the estate of Carson to the University of Nebraska following his death, um, while a $1 million donation was announced on November 4th, 2011, creating the Johnny Carson Opportunity Scholarship Fund, um, you know, which is just a, it's just a, another one more thing, you know, to help people, you know, kind of that wanted to follow that, uh, um, performing arts passion, you know, making them, making it, making them able to, uh, pursue that. Um, yeah. unfortunately he passed away on January 23rd of 2005 from emphysema. Yeah. So pretty much Johnny Carson is uh king of late night. Absolutely awesome. <laughs> oh yeah. Totally unparalleled. <laughs> um, all right. So we're going to round out the episode um, with Walter Leland Cronkite Jr., born November 4th, 1916. Um, he was an American broadcast journalist best known as Anchorman for the CBS Evening, New- Evening News for 19 years, started in 1962 and retired in 1981. So during the heyday of CBS News in the 1960s as well as the 70s, he was often cited as, quote, the most trusted man in America, end quote, after being so named in an opinion poll. Right. And we've um, talked so, about him. I'm sorry. Well, we, we've talked about him a little bit before. And, you know, I have to kind of preface what we're going to talk about in this section a little bit. As I was working on this section a little bit, the stuff that we will say in the show, I mean, this isn't even the half of what Ron, Walter Cronkite has either done or been awarded or been involved with. 
<laughs> it's just amazing uh, the amount of information there was on Walter Cronkite. There, I mean, uh, we talk a lot about what could be good standalone episodes, and I feel like anyone from Johnny Carson to Walter Cronkite, I mean, they'd be awesome to just dive more into who they were and what they contributed to society um, at that time. Like, it, it would be such a good episode. It would. That's a good idea. <laughs> uh, so, um, to kind of go into his uh, background for what he did back then, um, he dropped out of college, actually, in his junior year. Um, and in the fall term of 1935, he started a series of newspaper reporting jobs covering news and sports. He entered broadcasting as a radio announcer for WKY over in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. So his broadcast name, I know we were talking about this a little bit before the show, his <laughs> broadcast name was actually Walter Wilcox. He would later explain that radio stations at the time did not want people to use their real names for the fear of taking their listeners from them if they left. <laughs> Which is kind of kind of weird to think about now because, um, you know, now people might change their names on this sort of thing so they don't get stalked and murdered. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I mean, I guess it's not really that funny, but, you know, it's kind of, you know, people might do these these types of people might do the same thing, but for entirely different reasons nowadays. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, it's really almost so- like one of those. It's like one of those. It's like one of those things where like actors or actresses, they change their name to have like the middle name or the shorter part of their name and are known by that rather than their full legal name. It's kind of mm-hmm. like that, but it's like a fictional identity. So radio stations don't lose out on listener basis, which is bizarre. <laughs> right. And so you go, I mean, that Walter Wilcox, I mean, that would stay at that station. I mean, if he ever went anywhere else, you know, he'd have to choose a different name and people might recognize him. But, <laughs> you know, it's not like the station would be advertising like, all right, Walter Cronkite now, you know, starting next week. And people would just jump over to the other station. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want that happening. <laughs> Feel free to take over if you'd like. All right. In Kansas City, um, he joined the United Press in 1937. Um, He became one of the top American reporters during World War II, and the scope of his coverage uh, was extremely broad. He went all the way from North Africa all the way up through uh, various places in Europe. Um, And after this, he received a job offer from Edward R. Murrow of the CBS News, um, to join the Murrow Boys team of war correspondents. Um, this is, of course, relieving Bill Downs as the head of the Moscow Bureau. Um, he in, in, is pretty interesting. He initially accepted, um, but then shortly after, he ended up turning down the offer because the United Press um, gave him a pay increase. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, this kind of kind of foreshadowing a little bit because you know cbs was really trying to get them and they just they didn't feel like you know shelling out the money um you know to to outpay uh united press and you know eventually they would get them but uh it you know there, there was kind of a little bit of tension right there in the beginning um as to you know where he was where he was going to work <clears throat> so yeah. kind of a kind of another interesting story um, you know, at one point in time, Cronkite was aboard the USS Texas, um, leaving from Norfolk, Virginia. Um, and 
he was on the ship through her service off the coast of North Africa as part of Operation Torch. Um, and then he was to be aboard uh, on the return trip to the United States. On the return trip, Cronkite was flown off of the USS Texas in one of the uh, OS-2U Kingfisher aircraft um, when Norfolk was within flying, dif- dif- flying distance. Excuse me. Um, and this is where it gets kind of interesting. He was granted permission to be flown the rest of the distance to Norfolk um, so that he could outpace a rival correspondent on the USS Massachusetts um, to return to the U.S. and to issue the first uncensored news reports uh, to be published about Operation Torch. So, you know, rather than, than riding the rest of the way back on the ship, he actually got permission to be flown all the way there just to beat a rival um, war correspondent for another uh, another uh, news group, <laughs> which is, I mean, <laughs> holy cow! <laughs> oh my gosh, that's you know, really I, cool. It is I mean, really cool, and I just it makes me wonder, you know, what hoops do you have to jump through to make that happen, and who was, you know, the one? I who was the guy that was making the decisions? Like, yep, send him, you know. Um, he was uh, well since he was probably the most trusted <laughs> news anchor um, in America. Probably not at that time, but he was probably like, "Look, my wife's having a baby. I really got to get home." Instead, he goes on the news. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Who knows if there's any sort of shady deals going on to actually make that happen? But it's interesting <laughs> nonetheless. <Right. laughs> <laughs> oh man all right so um we'll, we'll kind of you know briefly touch on a few things and then get to the more meat later on so in 1950 mm-hmm. um that's when cronkite actually joined the cbs news um and, uh, in its young and growing television division for cbs um he was actually recruited recruited by moreau um as mentioned previously so he actually started anchoring um in 1952 and he actually anchored um the 1952 presidential election as well as later conventions uh, which were the first nationalized television conventions um ever and he was the anchor for um that time so actually during the presidential election of 1952 and 1956 Cronkite hosted the CBS news discussion series pick the winner um and those are just a few things. Anything else you want to pick up on? Um, yeah. In uh, <clears throat> shortly after that, uh, he was actually um, had a morning show. Uh, the host of a morning show it was extremely short-lived, um, and it didn't really do so well. Um, it was a challenge to NBC's Today in 1954. Um, and it was kind of funny because he interviewed guests. Uh, his job on the show was in, to interview guests, and he also chatted with a like a lion puppet, uh, a lion puppet, excuse me, um, whose name was Charlemagne, and they just kind of chatted about the news. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel like I at this know. time it it was like the it was the competition between the Today and the Tonight Show for mm-hmm. CBS. So they're really trying to bring news through a comedic way as well, <laughs> but it just didn't really click as well. <laughs> yeah i don't know it just seems like seems like it's one of those things that could either really do extremely well or it could totally fail um you know talking to a puppet i'm sure that has a a, a certain amount of you know n- niche audience but for the most part you know no one's gonna watch that <laughs> <laughs> so uh moving forward a little bit um is 
very well known in 1969 during the Apollo 11 missions um, and Apollo 13 moon missions, Cronkite received uh, the best ratings out of all uh, networks carrying or coveraging this, uh, the Apollo missions, and he made CBS the most watched television network for the missions. Um, and, you know, I, I believe we talked about the Apollo 11 uh, or the Apollo missions a little bit before and Cronkite's involvement with it, but he actually made, I mean, he kind of put CBS on the map for that's what, you know, they were known for is the coverage of the Apollo missions. Yeah. Yep. And um, go ahead. Oh, it doesn't matter. I was just going to move on to the keep oh, on going. Sounds good. Okay, if you uh, so one of Cronkite's trademarks was actually ending the CBS Evening News with the phrase, with the phrase and that's the way it is, followed by the date of the broadcast. Um, I mean, that's really cool though mm-hmm. to really coin a phrase like that. And it was, and, and you know, to to kind of add to the professionalism a little bit, on uh, that was he only did that on the show on the. Uh, at times where he finished on an actual news story, if the, for any reason he finished on a uh, an editorial kind of uh, broadcast or anything where he gave his opinion, he didn't say that. Um, okay. And okay. so it, it's kind of interesting, you know. It adds to the the, the professionalism uh, factor that uh, he 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 only reserved that for things that were actually um, straight down the line news. Interesting. That's actually really cool. I never yeah. knew that. Yeah, Interesting. and that's, that's kind of something that uh, you'd be kind of hard-pressed to find that, you know, in current, uh, any sort of, you know, news media. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, true. Um, uh, I know we've talked about this um, in the recent past as well. So Cronkite is actually vividly remembered for breaking the news of the assassination of JFK on Friday, November 22nd of 1963. Conkite had been uh, standing on the United Press International Wire uh, machine in the CBS newsroom as the bulletin of the president's shooting broke, and he clamored to get on the air to break the news um, as he wanted CBS to be the first network to do so. But actually, due to technical problems, the initial news bulletin was broadcasted in audio only, and they had no visuals. Right, and so at the time where he was currently receiving the news, there were no cameras in the room. And to bring a camera in and get it all set up would have taken 20 to 25 minutes. And so he ended up um, going into a, right there was a a radio broadcast booth and they patched it into the audio for the television feed. And that's how he was able to get, you know, the, the, the initial bulletin out there. And then shortly after, um, at the, probably at the top of the hour, they could follow up with a, with an actual, uh, news bulletin that was that was televised oh dang that's pretty influential (laughs) i mean i mean you know just those things behind the scenes is really interesting yeah yep so on february 14th 1980 cronkite announced that he intended to retire from the cbs evening news at the time cbs uh, actually had a policy of mandatory retirement by age 65 um Although sometimes compared to a father figure or an uncle uncle figure, um, in an interview about his <laughs> retirement, he described himself as being more like a comfortable old shoe to his audience. <laughs> um, his last day in the anchor chair at the CBS Evening News was on March 6, 1981. Um, he was succeeded 
the following Monday by Dan Rather. <laughs> um, the whole the comfortable old shoe shoe quote is uh, it's very fitting. And uh, did you it is, pun that? Did you pun <laughs> that? You pun that so bad. You did that on purpose. Yeah, that was bad. I apologize for that. Oh my God. That was terrible. <laughs> the worst thing is that you didn't even realize it when you said it. You did not even realize it when you said it. <laughs> yeah, that was bad. Um, <laughs> if the shoe fits, you know. Oh God, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> All right, take it away for the uh, Notable Acts now. Dang, man. All right, we got to breeze through this. We're running high on time. So um, Notable Acts now, Cronkite continued to broadcast occasionally as a special correspondent for CBS, CNN, as well as NPR into the 24th century. So even though he retired, he was very much connected to um, the news world Mm -hmm. as we knew it. Um, He anchored the second space flight by John Glenn in 1998, which is pretty influential, especially since... um, he did you know, the he first one. The whole first space flight. He did yeah, John exactly. Glenn's first flight as well. All right, tagging you in. In 1983, he reported on the British general election for the ITV current affairs series World in Action, um, interviewing many, uh, uh, interviewing among many others the victorious Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Um, he also hosted the annual Vienna New Year's concert on PBS from 1985 all the way till 2008. Um, succeeded by Julia, Julie Andrews in 2009. And then uh, kind of moving forward a little bit, we got May 21st, 1999, Walter Cronkite participated in a panel discussion on integrity uh, in the media with Ben Bradley and Mike McCurry at the Connecticut Forum in Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, this is a pretty, you know, it's kind of a funny story here. Uh, Cronkite provided a particularly funny anecdote about taking a picture from Taking a picture from a house in Houston, Texas, um, where a newsworthy event, I, you know, it, it doesn't really matter to the story. Um, newsworthy event occurred and being praised for getting a very unique photograph. Um, and then, you know, later on after that, he found out um, that uh, the city desk had provided him with the wrong address. So it was totally <laughs> a picture of a totally random house that wasn't even related to the story at all. <laughs> that's funny um oh that's good it is <laughs> cronkite narr- uh he also narrated the imax film about the space shuttle um called the dream is alive released in 1985 um and then from may 26 1986 to august 15 1994 he was the narrator's voice in the epcot center attraction spaceship earth um, at the Walt Disney World in Orlando, Orlando, Florida. Um, and now that's really cool. It is really cool, and there is there is tons of other things that he either narrated or voiced. Um, and you know that that kind of an isolated uh, instance of you know that part of his his career, but he did quite a bit of voiceovers and narration. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think now I think on the space thing at Epcot, it's like Judy Dench. Because I went there a few years ago, and I'm pretty sure okay. it's Judy Dench. <laughs> but she does a pretty good job. Um, he was, uh, Cronkite was a vocal advocate for free airtime for political candidates. So uh, we can, even though we love Walter Cronkite, he uh, contributes to the annoyingness of political ads. Um, he, was the, he was a member of the Constitution Project's Bipartisan Liberty and Security Committee. Um, that's a mouthful. Yes, it is. Um <laughs> 
And um, in 2003, Conkite was who owned property on Martha's Vineyard became involved in a long-running debate over his opposition to the construction of a wind farm within that area. Um, it was shortly after that that uh, shortly after Cronkite retired, actually, uh, actually, um, <clears throat> Tom Chancy, the owner of KTSP TV, um, and then CVS. Uh, the then CBS affiliate in Phoenix. Sorry, that was difficult to say for some reason. Um, he contacted Cronkite and asked him if he would be willing to have a journalism school in Arizona State University named after him. Um, and of course, you know who can turn that down? Uh, so uh, Cronkite was—he wasn't just a namesake um, for the department. Um, he also took time to interact with the students and the staff at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Cronkite made the trip to Arizona uh, annually to present the Walter Cronkite Award for Excellence in Journalism to the leader to a leader in the field of media every year. Just, oh, that's it, awesome! It, I mean, it is being pretty so awesome. involved with the yeah, being so involved with the passion of media is is something else for for mm-hmm. Walter Cronkite. And you know, not just being you know the, the having a this um, this this college of education. Um, named after him but being so involved later on it's not like you know it was dedicated to him okay here you go and he's never seen again it was you know he made regular appearances to to work with students and then to you know to you know above and beyond his yearly trip to give an award yeah yeah exactly um on november 4th of 2013 uh missouri western state university in saint joseph missouri dedicated the walker cronkite memorial um, the nearly 6,000 square foot memorial includes images, videos, and memorabilia from Cronkite's life and the many events he covered as a journalist. The memorial includes a replica of the newsroom for which, from which Cronkite broadcast the news during the 1960s and 70s. Um, in 2014, the memorial received the Missouri Division of Tourism Spotlight Award. And that would be, that would be a very interesting place to go um, to see... It'd be kind of cool to look at, you know, a, a a mock newsroom that you know made up to be exactly, you know, where uh, Cronkite broadcast from. Yeah, I agree. It'd be so cool. I just want to sit down in the chair, <laughs> you know, yeah. just really, really, really get what the feeling was to be Walter Cronkite. Yeah, not as cool as being in the actual chair, but you know, I mean, it's the next best thing. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so that's a wrap. Um, thanks again for joining Young Nostalgia this week as we continue the journey through retro pop culture. And uh, I hope you really enjoy these uh, series of then and nows that we're bringing you. Um, today was Jimmy Fallon, Johnny Carson, and Walter Cronkite, some top names in media history. So as always, if you enjoy the show, leave a kind review of on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and feel free to share and subscribe. Uh, if you have a future topic or you want to be a guest, give Ben and I an email at youngnostalgia2017 at gmail.com. Check us out on our Podbean page. You'll find our links to our Facebook and Twitter accounts as well. That's youngnostalgia.podbean.com. So I believe that's all. Anything else you got, big guy? Nope. It was a good show great show as we always say here on young nostalgia keep the bottles empty and the ashtrays full take care everybody